This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, well, well. Here we are in the fourth week of the season, and who would have thought the Cleveland Browns, yes, the Cleveland Browns, have a better record than Ron's, well, and mine, I guess ours, New England Patriots, but they do. The Browns are 1-1-1, one, and, one, and New England is 1-2, and two? Ron? They are. <laughs> Bill Belichick's going on. What's going on? Well, they got too many holes in the roster, or maybe they got too many frayed relationships in the locker room. Tell you the truth, they've got... Uh, Lingering hangover from not only the Super Bowl loss to the Eagles, but Belichick's refusal to explain to his players or anyone else his curious decision of benching a guy who started 98% of the uh, plays last season uh, and didn't play a single. He played one snap in the Super Bowl. Uh, uh, you know, you can maybe make a mistake like that, but you got to explain yourself at least to your player satisfaction, which he has not. And then. then Add to that, we've got the swirling stories about the love-hate triangle yeah, uh, with right. Belichick, Brady, and the, his body guru, Alex Guerrero. You've got a story about them nearly trading Gronk to the Lions, which is, seemed to be sort of substantiated by Gronk when he said, uh, well, I told him, you know, I'm going where Tom goes. Uh, <laughs> you know, and then you got Brady not showing up at OTAs and all of that. So I think when you add it all together... He comes out of the huddle and looks and sees Brandon Cooks has, uh, you know, 120 more receiving yards than his entire group of receivers, and uh, you got personal problems and personnel problems. Not good. Well, we're gonna we're gonna get to some of that a little bit later. But Goose, uh, someone asked me the other day if it was too early to say the Patriots are finished, and I think I told him to submit his name for a drug test. I don't know, but I mean, are you kidding me? It's it's not only three weeks. But we've been down this road so many times before with New England. Well, I wouldn't say so many times. They've started one or two, only one other time the Tom Brady era, and that was 2012. But Brady was 35 then. He had Wes Welker and the dynamic tight end combo of Gronkowski and Hernandez catching passes. Pro Bowls, Logan Mankins and Nate Solder blocking for him. Dominant defenders and Vince Wolfark, Aqib Tlaib and Jared Mayo. That team turned out one or two started at 12 before finish. I don't see the same talent level on this New England team. Yeah, I don't either, but I'll tell you what I do see, guys. I see Mike Pereira in the house today. He's going to be here to talk about the Clay Matthews rule, otherwise known as the roughing the passer penalty. We also have Hall of Fame candidates Tiki Barber, Duran Cherry, both members of the Hall's 2019 preliminary ballot, as well as Hall of Fame voter Frank Cooney to tell us which Raiders belong in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. All, All that's coming up, so stay where we are. <laughs> this is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Hey, before we get into what's going on around the league, I'd like to mention the passing of a Hall of Famer and one of the best wide receivers anywhere, and that's former Eagles great Tommy McDonald, who died this week at the age of 84. Now, some people may not know it, but at 5'7 and 175 pounds, Tommy was the smallest player inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame when he was chosen in 1998. But, guys, that's not what I remember about Tommy McDonald that year. Uh, This is. When when he was on stage, he was so excited that he tossed his 25-pound bust into the air, turned on a radio, and danced to disco music. Yeah, we don't make him up here. (laughs) Goose, that's what I call Hall of Fame worthy. And what do you expect? Another former cowboy. 
Dallas is like a key <laughs> former cowboy. Oh, yeah. oh wow, awesome. that is I'm weak. Key NFL portal if you aspire Boston Canton, Lance Allworth, Mike Ditka, Forrest Gregg, Herb Adderley, Tommy McDonald. Oh, you have no shame. Parcels, oh, all passed through Dallas on the way to Canton. They had to go through Dallas to get there. Oh, that is weak. Yeah, yeah Ron, when you think of Tommy McDonald, you think of Cowboys, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. He's also a Michigan guy because he once had a sandwich in Detroit. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, well, you know, uh, the, the thing that I uh, I think about him is, is you know, that, as you pointed out, a tiny little guy who for a lot of his career, you know, didn't wear a face mask and finally right? just wore the single bar because he didn't, you know, he didn't really want to wear that. But, uh, and... Uh, I remember a quote that that he had in uh, in a story uh, a number of years ago, uh, talking about uh, how he survived. You know, all those years, he was such a tiny guy. And he said, "Whichever way a tackler wants to take me is the way I am perfectly happy to go. I fall like 175 pounds of spaghetti." <laughs> I don't hear many quarterbacks saying that today. Do you? Oh, that's great. <laughs> Garoppolo um, should give him, should have. Uh, yeah, you're right, um, Ronnie. I, I know you and I talked about this earlier this year. Um, you, you mentioned, especially when we had uh, Roman Gabriel on here, that you got a note from him when you were a kid, and it meant a yep. lot to you. Still have. And um, it, I have, I have a photo that Tommy McDonald signed for me. Um, 50 years ago, and it's framed and, and hanging in my office. And, and to this day, it, it's it's really a cherished item. And I know I'm not alone uh, in that department because you should read, and I think you probably have, Ray Dinger's piece on Tommy and his relationship with him. Uh, Ray actually presented him at Canton, but uh, Ray's relationship with Tommy as a kid and then as an adult. And it's a story that we carried this week on our website, talkoffamenetwork.com. And it's worth reading, Ron. Yeah, it's a great piece, and, uh, and everyone should go to talkoffamenetwork.com uh, and read it. And it, it really explains uh, how much a guy can mean to other people, uh, to a city. Uh, you know, Tommy McDonald meant a lot to a lot of people in Philadelphia. He meant a lot to people back in Oklahoma, where he was an All-American on those great Bud Wilkins teams that won 47 in a row. And I think he was in 31 of those games himself. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know... For, for those of us who do what the three of us have done for most of our careers, uh, I think it's sad because there was a time uh, when uh, writers and players could have those kind of relationships. And now, yeah, yeah. sadly, it doesn't seem that they do. I know Cameron Snyder had the same relationship with uh, with Johnny Unitas, of all people. Yeah, he did. Yep, and, he uh, did. You know, but, uh, you know, I think you're not going to see that anymore, sadly. Uh, but it's a cool story, no question. Um, and, and Goose, one other thing I want to mention here in, in this in, a, in this age or this era where you got guys like the Amish rifle, Ron's favorite quarterback, Love Ron, Patrick, uh, they're throwing for 400 yards regularly. Um, people forget how good a receiver Tommy McDonald's was when he retired. He ranked sixth in career receptions, fourth in yards, and second in touchdowns. And I remember a great quote from Vince Lombardi: "If I had 11 Tommy McDonald's, I'd win a championship every year." Yeah, in 1961, uh, McDonald caught 64 passes for 1,100 yards, 13 touchdowns, and a 13-game season, and that led the NFL. That was in an era when a 5'7 wide receiver had to do battle with bigger, more physical corners up and down the field every play, every game, every week, in an effort to create space for himself and for completions. Receivers don't realize how good they have it in today's game. Yeah, well, anyway, Tommy McDonald's gone way too soon at the age of 84. Uh, There weren't many better receivers or people in the NFL. Um, Now, speaking of the NFL, Goose, uh, what's up with the best available Spartan out there? You know I'm talking about, Le'Veon Bell. Apparently, 
he's for sale with a number of teams calling Pittsburgh. So here's my question to you, um, knowing that he's a one-year rental, um, that he can't be extended to a long-term deal, knowing that he's missed camp in the first three weeks of the season. A, would you be interested if you were another team in getting Le'Veon Bell for one year? And B, if you were, what you what you would you be willing to pay for him or trade for him? Well, if I'm a playoff contender and have no running game, I'm certainly out there kicking tires. Unfortunately, the team that fits that profile and needs him the most is the Baltimore Ravens, but that trade won't happen, not giving the best, maybe the most complete back in the game to a division rival. Green Bay, however, may want to take a look, though. Mm. Can you can you see Bell catching passes from Aaron Rodgers? Yeah, I can. You can see him catching a lot of passes. Uh, Ron, how about you on this? I mean, because I, to me, this guy may be no different than, say, Manny Machado. I mean, traded as rental, but waiting on his big ta- payday next March from the team with the deepest pockets. So what would you be willing to trade for him, and would you be interested? Well, I, I'd be interested, but only if you could get him in the, that Khalil Mack sort of way, you know, where you've... Uh, at least got a, a long-term agreement in in principle, you know, even if it's under the table. Because uh, otherwise, first off, why would he go? Why would he go someplace else uh, to get paid the same money that, that he's going to get in in Pittsburgh? Uh, so you're running that risk. And and if you're the other team, uh, you know, do you really? You know, maybe you're okay if you just need to run, or you don't really care. Say, okay, we're going to take a one-year shot, and then whatever. But, uh, but I think it's going to cost you something. You're going to give up a pretty good pick um, to get a player with that uh, ability. So you want to give up a first or second round pick uh, with no insurance that the guy's not going to walk on you? I, I think this is easier said than done. Okay, uh, let's say he doesn't play for the Steelers this, this season. Goose quickly, uh, how diminished are their playoff and/or Super Bowl chances? With him, they're a Super Bowl contender. Without him, they're a playoff contender. Well, there's another guy out there that people would love to have. That's former cornerback Albert Lewis, because when he was good, as our Rick Gosson pointed out this week on our website, talkofamenetwork.com, there weren't many better. And Goose is here to make his Hall of Fame case for us, just as he did this week for our readers. Goose Man, take it away. Hall of Fame coach Tony Dungy says if Kansas City cornerback Albert Lewis had played on a Super Bowl team, he'd already be in the Hall of Fame. But he didn't, so he's not. In fact, he's not even in the discussion. Now, Lewis was a shutdown corner who's been lost in the pages of history through no fault of his own. Longevity, productivity, consistency, it was all there. Jerry Rice once called Lewis the toughest cornerback he ever faced. Now, Lewis played 16 seasons, the first 11 with the Chiefs in the 80s, and the last five with AFC West rival the Raiders in the 1990s. He lined up on the left side of his career. That's the more difficult side for a quarterback to play because that's the side of the field all the right-handed quarterbacks see naturally as they're dropping back to pass and setting up in the pocket. Lewis was a third-round draft pick by the Chiefs out of Eddie Robinson's cornerback incubator at Grabbling. He didn't start as a rookie, but still intercepted four passes. He stepped into the starting lineup in 1984 and remained there for the next 15 seasons. In 1998, in his final season, he became the oldest defensive player in NFL history to score a touchdown when he returned an interception 74 yards against the Seattle Seahawks. But as stout as he was individually in man coverage, there was little team success to draw attention to his excellence on the corner. Lewis participated in only six playoff games in his career, and three of those came in his final season with the Chiefs. He was a big corner at 6'2", 200, with 4'3", speed. He was an excellent blitzer off the edge with 12 and a half career sacks and was without peer as a punt blocker with 10 of them. 
The opposition did its best to avoid Lewis on the field on both passing and kicking downs. Now Canton has avoided Lewis for the first 18 years of his Hall of Fame eligibility. His career deserves better. His career deserves consideration for a bust again. Well, Gooseman, uh, Albert Lewis just missed the seemingly significant you know, 50 interception number. Uh, had he retired with 50 picks or more, uh, do you think it would have made a significant difference? I mean, we got Darrell Reeves is barely half that, and people are already talking about him, uh, your favorite uh, first ballot Hall of Famer. Um, do you think 50 would have made a difference? 65 didn't do any good for Ken Riley. 56 didn't do it for Pat Fisher. 54 didn't do it for Al- Eric Allen. What do they all have in common? No ring. That's what's blocking it over Canton for Lewis and the rest of them, not the number of interceptions. <laughs> well, it's not interceptions. It's time that's going to do it for us here, guys. we got to go. Coming up, we got Fox Rules expert Mike Pereira. He's next right after this. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, whenever we have an officiating question here at the Talk of Fame Network, we, well, like the people of Fox Sports, we turn to our friend Mike Pereira, who is the NFL's VP of officiating, is now Fox's resident rules expert. And Mike, with over 30 roughing the passer calls in the first three weeks, including three on Clay Matthews, We've got a lot of questions we're hoping you can answer, and, and let's start right there with that. Um, the roughing the passer call was supposed to be a point of emphasis this year, but it seems like it's more a point of frustration or aggravation. What's gone wrong here, and how would you correct it or fix it? Well, I mean, I think it's a good question as to what's gone wrong, because I do not think that this is what the competition committee in for it to be when they put it on as a point of emphasis. Um, you know, we've heard some rumblings now that the committee is going to talk about it. It's scheduled a conference call that was already scheduled for next week. But in my discussions with uh, a couple of competition committee members, um, it, the point of emphasis when it left the league meeting was about basically being the quarterback ground um, and landing on top of him with all of your body weight. And, you know, you saw in week one of the season, they started with this landing on top of your body, the, on top of the body of the quarterback with most or all of your body weight without the lift and drive. And I, I think it went from there and got out of hand to where the claim cousins would determine the outcome of the game um, between Green Bay and Minnesota. Um, that took it even to a further stretch of the uh, point of emphasis that, that I think has got everybody even talking more. You know, to me, the needle has moved too far. Um, I think you got to go back to common sense. I would hope the league, after this meeting with the competition committee, talks about, A, what Clay Matthews did in his hit against Cousins was not a foul, even though they publicly defended Tony Carini, and even though sent the play to the team showing that this was a way not to tackle the quarterback. I think they have to admit that they were wrong in doing so. And when it comes to driving the quarterback into the ground, I think they need to realize, and I would say, that it's only going to be a foul if you wrap, take two or three steps, and then drive them into the ground. But if it's all part of one act, like uh, several of Clay Matthews hits, and uh, many, many of those that have been called this year, that it's really not a foul because it's not 
unnecessary. And if it's not unnecessary, then to me, it shouldn't be a foul. So it's got to seek a level to where it becomes acceptable to players and coaches and everybody else for that matter. And even, even to me, to the competition committee. So, Mike, if you're Clay Matthews, would you dare tackle another quarterback? Well, I would. Yeah, I, I would because I, I would be concerned about the consequences if I did tackle him and then he got away. And, and I, I do think that the, the needle's going to move. And so I, I don't know how you can change. And, you know, you've got aggressive players like Matthews and others. That, do you change the way you play? There's absolutely no other way to do it. Uh, I don't look at, you know, is it against uh, is it against Cousins? Did he get fined for that? No, he didn't get fined for that. Um, you know, so I, I think you have to look at it and say, I'm not going to change the way I play. And, you know, uh, obviously you could be changing attitudes here because you don't like to pay money. And you don't like to uh, get penalties against your team, but I don't. I don't. I think this is one of the things that you can't really change. And if I'm Clay Matthews, you know, I go to the league and say, "Look at what I'm doing, especially with the hit on Cousins. I'm not even putting them at risk of injury." And so, therefore, I'm not going to change my way. You know, now I'm not going to drive my helmet into his chest. I'm not going to hit him in the head, head and neck area. But I'm going to wrap a tackle. And if it results in, to me, if it results in a in a flag and a fine, then so be it. But I, I just would hate to see him change his ways. Well, it's funny uh, that you, you mentioned that, Mike, because you talk about changing uh, their ways. Down in Miami, uh, you had William Hayes, who was trying to avoid hitting Derek Carr with his entire body weight, and he shifted in a way as he was falling on the ground that he tore his ACL. He's out for the year. Uh, how does Park Avenue uh, look in the mirror on a situation like that? I mean, he was twisting himself into a pretzel to not get a call uh, that's probably ludicrous on the face of it, and now he's out for the season. Yeah, I mean, I, of course, I look at that play, and I don't necessarily buy that notion. Um, uh, but because I think he, and, and actually, to me, he landed with his body weight, but the upper part of his body weight on car anyway. So I'm not really sure that I buy that. But, you know, you can look at other plays where players have let up and quarterbacks have scooted away. And, and it is, it is, you know, you're just changing the game too much. And, and we've said this before, you know, when it came with hits on defenseless receivers, you know, you know, defenders were saying, hey, there's nothing else I could do if it was a last-minute thing. And if a, if a receiver changed his body posture, you know, how could I be held responsible in the league? basically said, hey, that's tough. You know, you're held responsible. But in, in this case here, where, you know, to me, it's so clearly an overreaction to the Anthony Barr hit on Aaron Rodgers last year that broke his collarbone. Um, I, I just think that, you know, I mean, I hate to say it, but because I'm kind of one of them too, but non-football people in the office in New York are making decisions that really aren't practical on the field. And uh, so I I, I just I get concerned when the competition committee and working with them in my time there, I always felt they were the most important committee when it comes to the game of football. When when the game is being officiated um, differently than what they have said or how they said they wanted officiated it officiated, then it becomes it becomes concern to me. And uh, you know, I just would rather go back to try to figure it out what a catch is than have to 
deal with all of this uh, <laughs> roughing the passer stuff. Well, you're preaching to the choir here, Mike. And I saw a story by uh, Mark Maskey of the Washington Post and where he was talking about this conference call next week. And then he said, he, I think he quoted someone uh, either on the competition committee or close to the competition committee saying, listen, we need to walk this thing back, but we really don't think anything can be done this year. Do you feel that way, too? I mean, is it too late to do something about it this year? No, I don't feel it is too late. Um, I mean, the helmet rule, when it came in, 51 called in the first two weeks of the preseason. You know, 20 called uh, in the in the second two weeks of the preseason. One called in week one. Um, one called in week two. And I'm not sure... There may have been one called in week three. Uh, it can things can be dialed down, and and I think the you know you're not going to change the rule. Heck, the rule really didn't change in the first place. Um, right. So you know it's just it's just dialing down to say, and I think it's easy. I mean, I but then I'm also very naive at times. But to me, if it was me and they said dial it down, uh, I'm dialing it down by saying, look at if uh, if a defender, a rushing defender. If he if he wraps the quarterback and takes steps and then drives him into the ground, then you got a foul. If you, if he lands on him at most of his, of his body weight or all of his body weight, but if it's all one act and he wraps him, takes him immediately to the ground, let it go. That's the game of football. There's no second act. There's nothing that can be done. Hey, everybody has a risk of injury, and to me, that's how I dial it back. Okay, Mike, we've got the helmet rule, defenseless receiver, and now roughing the passer. It seems the NFL is legislating defense out of the game. When is the NFL going to change the rule that favors the defense? Well, let's not even let's not even forget the fact that they made the point of emphasis out of illegal contact because they're concerned that they had less plays for two years in a row, less points for two years in a row, less passing yardage. And so, what did they do? They made the they made this point of emphasis on illegal contact. And and I thought, and I haven't, again, haven't don't have the totals for week three yet, but through week two in 2017, how many illegal contact calls? None. Through week two of 2018 season, how many? 15. Uh, let's see, 15 times more, um, which is given receivers uh, a freer route to run, which is why we have, you know, more points, more plays, longer games, by the way. Um, but, uh, you know, that's another huge point of emphasis. And, and I will say this, and it's proving absolutely true again, and that's that points of emphasis have a greater impact on how the game is played than an actual rule change and um and i think nothing there's there's no year to me um like this year that proves that point well you you mentioned that and i saw something in uh, uh the patriots first game of the season and it, uh to use my father's expression chap my ass mike uh they, they make they, <laughs> they complete a pass to uh Cordarell patterson of the patriots he takes he catches the ball he takes a few steps forward guys coming up to tackle him he lowers his head blasts into the defensive back from Houston, gives him a concussion, he's out for the game, he's out for the next game, no flag, no penalty, no nothing. Uh, What is that? Well, I think when they finished week 
two of the preseason, I think they realized that they had a debacle on their hands, kind of where they are to me with this little patch of So what did they do? And there was comp- competition committee input into this also, was that they just, you know, as an explanation, put in some verbiage, put out some verbiage that said that it wasn't a foul if it was incidental or inadvertent. Well, if you do that, you're basically given a green light to me, to officials, to pass on making the call. Um, And I think that's what happened. And I, I can't say that I'm totally against that. You know, to me, I'm, I kind of like it if, if there are more fines than flags, um, you know, when it comes to some of these things like this, because, you know, in, in real time, it's really hard to figure out. Some, see, some appear to be pretty obvious, but who initiated it? Sometimes both players lower their heads, and, and I, I think it led to, again, an overreaction when this rule was put in. And so I, I kind of like the back and off, Ron, and, um, and I'm, I, that's why I'm not going to be upset if they back off this one, which I think would be logical to just about everybody that's involved in the game. Hey, Mike, as always, thanks for the education, both today and every weekend. Thanks very much. You got it. Thanks, thanks, Mike. Thanks, Mike. That was Fox Rules analyst Mike Pereira. Up next is Hall of Fame candidate Tiki Barber. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, as you should know by now, there are 102 names on the preliminary ballot for the Pro Football Hall of Fame's Class of 2019. But there's only one group of twins. That would be the Barbers, with cornerback Rondé, who's been on this program before, and twin brother Tiki, who is with us now. Now, both should be familiar to you, especially Tiki, mostly because he was a star running back with the Giants, who holds numerous franchise records, including most 100-yard games in a season, most 200-yard games in a season, most rushing yards in a career, and on and on. But who has also been on a zillion, and I mean zillion, TV programs. He's appeared in a Dave Matthews video. He's been a guest on NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, one of my favorite shows, and who currently hosts a CBS radio program called Tiki and Tyranny, where he and co-host Brandon Tierney more than once, more than once, have grilled me. I think more skewered is the, the correct word, Tiki, on the Hall of Fame. Tiki, thanks for joining us. Appreciate you being here. Hey, Clark, you know that's our job, right? It's only, it's only interesting if there's debate. <laughs> <laughs> that's what you tell me. Um, listen, you've done a myriad of things on and off the football field, as I've just chronicled, uh, some of which I didn't even mention, most of which I didn't mention. So which is the most meaningful to you? Well, I mean, you you remember this, Clark, because you've been around uh, the game in, in my career as much as anybody. But early in my NFL career, I wasn't very good. And I remember my my manager saying, we got to divorce you, in a sense, from the game of football. So I started doing a bunch of media and uh, WFAN in the middle of the night talking about hockey in my off-seasons. And then I graduated ultimately to Fox News, which was which was a, a great departure from anything I had talked about uh, before. But I think the, the funnest thing that I that I ever worked on was the Today Show, uh, mainly because it was such an iconic American brand, and the stories I got to tell were fun and unique and deep, and not just about sports. And here's a little anecdotal story. 
story. Uh, Michael Wiseman was my producer on Football Night in America, and I was also working on uh, on the Today Show. And we did a story around the Super Bowl, the Arizona-Pittsburgh uh, Super Bowl, and I was embedded with the Cardinals. And so I did a story on Larry Fitzgerald. And they wanted the story to be about how amazing of a receiver Larry Fitzgerald is and all these great catches that he had had over the course, uh, over, the, over his uh, career and the things that he had done. But I ended up talking about his mom, who he hadn't had a relationship with, and his dad, who was a, and a member of the media, and uh, kept calling him and saying, Larry, you know, you got to you call your mom. you got to get, get back in touch with your mom. And before he got a chance to go see her in person, she passed away. And she keeps her driver's license in his wallet. It was so deep and emotional. It was, it was a football story, but not a football story. And I remember looking over at Mike Wiseman, because uh, he always used to joke to me about being a soft uh, Today Show reporter. And I looked at him after the Larry Fitzgerald interview, and I said, well, that's a Today Show interview for you. And it was amazing. So I think a combination of, of sports and all these other things that I've done have really made my career very interesting. Well, let's talk about that career and your inclusion on the Hall of Fame Pro Football Hall of Fame preliminary list. You've been on it before, but you haven't made it to the semifinal round of 25. Now, you had six 1,000-yard yep. seasons. You averaged 4.7 yards a carry. You had nearly 16,000 yards from scrimmage in your career, and you're a three-time Pro Bowler and are, are a member of the Giants' Ring of Honor. So how puzzled or frustrated are you that your candidacy hasn't moved forward? Well, I mean, I understand the process a little bit, and I know that there's guys that have to get in before you can get in because you have to get argued for. And I think that's one of the frustrating things for a lot of guys who are on the bubble or on the edge, I should say, like like I am, is that the process feels obscure. Um, but all I know I can control, and I can't control anymore because I'm not playing, is, is to talk about what I did when I was a player. And it's interesting because so much of my success happened in the last few years. Um, uh, one of the little-known facts about my 10,000 yards and 5,000 yards receiving is that most of my rushing yards came in my last three years. In fact, I had right. as many rushing yards in three years as I did in the first seven. Um, and so I was a late bloomer, in a sense. But I knew that all I, all I could do was try to uh, make my team as, as, as good as possible, even though we were some bad teams that I played on. So you ask the question if I'm frustrated? Yeah, a little bit, but I, I, I can't worry about it because I can't control it, nor do I really understand it. Tiki, with all your accomplishments, you know, Clark didn't mention that you also saved Tom Coughlin's job. You go back to the 2006 season, Giants are 7-8 entering the last game of the year. Tom's future is yeah. He had to win in Washington to reach playoffs and save himself, and he did. But only after you ran for 234 yards, a franchise record, and the most by any running back over the age of 30. You scored three times. Where does that rank among your best memories? Yeah, that's one of the great ones. And i got to tell you, next to uh, playing as well as I did also against the Washington Redskins in 2005 in the game after the, immediately after Wellington passed away, um, it's, one of, it's my second favorite memory. That 2005 game where I had rushed for 260 yards or so, or maybe it was 211, I can't remember now, Redskins and somebody, quarter touchdown in the third quarter and gave the ball to Timmy McDonald's, his grandson, um, and and realized that I had come to do the, all I could do to honor one of the great men of this of this league um, is, is my favorite memory. But that 2006 game that you're referencing, my last regular season game, was interesting because so many people had 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 uh, checked us out and really checked me out and said, well, Tiki doesn't care. He's retiring. He's going to do whatever it is he's going to go do when his career is done. But the game always meant something to me, especially in games that were meaningful. 
basketball. And uh, we just knew it from the very beginning. Our game plan was sound. Uh, we had them figured out. We obviously know them very well. And we just kept having big play after big play after big play. And I remember uh, we ran a draw early in the game, and Sean Taylor, may rest in peace, uh, came down and, and blew up the play. Uh, because they cross-dogged. And I remember going over to my fullback, Jim Finn at the time, and saying, you know, if they cross-dog like that, your guy, who I know it's your rule to take that guy, becomes the lineman's guy. So just take the lineman's guy. And he's looking at me going, no, you can't, you can't do that. I can't break the rules. I'm like, trust me, Finney, just break the rule. And so we ran the same play again. For whatever reason, they ran the same cross-dog. He took the lineman's guy. The lineman took his guy, and we split it for a 50-yard touchdown. I remember going to the sideline, uh, going saying to Finney, I was like, I told you, and he's cussing me out. Like, why do you always know the answer to these things? That's <laughs> I prided myself on as, as, a, as a player was, was understanding the game and looking into the X's and O's of it and trying to figure out how defenses were trying to play us, not just, you know, let me go rush for us 100 or 200 yards. Um, but that game did mean a lot. It meant a lot to me uh, because it was basically home for me, growing up in Southwest Virginia and being a Redskins fan until the Giants started paying my paycheck. Uh, and then also because it helped uh, Tom hold on to his job. And we all know what happened the following year when they won the Super Bowl. Tiki, after that Washington game, you ran for 137 yards against Philadelphia in the playoffs. Then you retired. Yeah. Why call it quits when you seem to have so much left in the tank? Well, I mean, it's, it's, I'm a deep, deep person and have so many more interests in my uh, life. And I knew that... The only way that I was great as a player was because I worked my ass off. I'm not just talking about the mental side, of it, as, I was, as I was referencing before, but the physical side. I found this strength trainer in New Jersey. His name was Joe Carini, and he used to just pound on me. It's starting really two or three weeks after the, after the uh, season went in. So in early March, I'm in the gym deadlifting 500 pounds and squatting and, and, and doing all these alternative exercises that built functional strength. And I loved it because I got really powerful, uh, which allowed me to stay healthy uh, throughout my career. But my last couple of years, some things just started to interfere. One, my kids were getting older. Uh, my, my, my babies were getting to the age where they wanted to play with me. And after games or on weekends, I, I didn't feel like it. Like, I, didn't, I didn't want to. I was physically so beat up. Uh, but then also, uh, I, I told you, as I was working with Fox News, these different people were stepping into my life. Um, uh, because of my connection at Fox News, I met a gentleman by the name of Tony Snow. We served as the White House press secretary for a little while. And every Thursday uh, after he resigned, when he got sick and ultimately passed away, but he resigned, but he went back and did Fox Radio. So he wanted me to come on just to talk sports. He's talking politics all the time, but he wants to talk some sports here and there. And so he called me every Thursday. And then one Thursday, um, he says to me, he goes, you know who really wants to meet you? I'm like, who, Tony? He said, uh, Secretary of State Rice. I'm like, get out of here. He's like, he's like, yeah, she's a big football fan. She loves what you and Rondé represent and, uh, and how good you are for your respective teams. And she'd love to meet you. And I said, well, Tony, if you can set that up, then I would, I would love to do it. And so, so a week and a half later, I get a call from her secretary saying, can you find a time in the offseason to come down and have lunch with Secretary of State Rice in the State Department? And so... I'm now at a, at a crossroads, right? I'm, I'm training, and I'm trying to get ready for a season. This is before the 2006 season, sure. my last year. And I don't want to go to Joe. I want to go meet Condoleezza Rice. Uh, that, that the all season before, I got a chance to go to Israel at the behest of Shimon Perez, who was then the premier. And so my life was getting like more interesting outside of the game. And uh, to put it into clarity, the first game of my last, my, my first game on Philadelphia, my last season, we played in Philly. Was at the New Link. Uh, I got the crap beat out of me by Jeremiah Trotter. And I walked out of that game saying, I'm done. It was like the second or third week of the season. And I knew I was done because I didn't feel it anymore. And I didn't want to do it anymore. Uh, and I told my, my, my fullback, Finney, I said, Finney, I'm done. He's like, what the hell are you talking about? 
I said, Finney, I just don't feel it anymore. I was like, don't get me wrong. I'm going to have a fantastic season, but I'm, I'm done. Made up my mind that these other things were more important, that my body didn't want to go through it anymore, and then I was ready to move forward. And to be perfectly honest, I was wrong. I didn't think the Giants were ready to win a Super Bowl, and I was going to expire before I got a chance to do it. Um, and lo and behold, they went win <laughs> the following year. Um, but it, it, life got complicated for me, and it became more interesting to do something else other than to play the game of football. Uh, two-part question. Uh, any regrets uh, in light of that Super Bowl the next season that you didn't stay one more year? And secondly, during the, that previous year, your final year, uh, did you have any games where you considered retiring at halftime? Did it strike you as a good idea? <laughs> oh, man, how crazy is that? Jeez. I, mean, I mean, no, never, never. I, look, I, I always thought I had a, a professional responsibility. I mean, I always, I always say this when we talk about players who get hurt often or uh, they, they don't show up week in and week out. I always prided myself on being available. I, my guys have an expectation for me this week, and, and I'm going to give it to them. And at the end of my career, the last couple of years, I remember going into me, uh, to media availability, and, I, and I, I knew I was good, right? I remember saying, I'm going to have a great day today, and I know I'm going to rush for 120 yards, and uh, this is what these guys expect of me, and I, I was starting to get, like, cocky and confident, um, but then I started to lose that a little bit, and that's when I knew it was time to retire, so I, don't, I, didn't, I, I, I didn't have regrets um, because I had made up my mind so strongly uh, to walk into, into my next career, and it was, it was unique, and it was pioneering in a way. Um, you know, who retires from the National Football League and goes worked at the Today Show. Um, and so uh, I knew I needed to take advantage of the opportunities while I could. Um, uh, but to, the, the short answer to that is I didn't deserve it, right? I didn't, I didn't want to put in the work uh, that I was detailing before to be that great player anymore. And so I couldn't have played. If I would have tried to do it and hung on, you know, quote, hung on for a couple of years, I wouldn't have been valuable to my teammates. I wouldn't have lived up to the expectation that they had for me. Uh, and so it was best for me to walk away. And in some regards, it was probably best for the Giants that I did. One, one quick last question. We've got about 45 seconds left. Uh, you had your ups and downs with Tom Coughlin, uh, but, you know, yeah. he's won two Super Bowls. Same media that wanted him fired a bunch of times. Now they want him in the Hall of Fame. Uh, <laughs> how do you see him? I mean, there aren't that many coaches that have won two Super Bowls. Was he Yeah, I respect yeah, he is a Hall of Fame coach, and I respect the hell out of him. We had our personal differences, mainly about how he treated people. Um, and I was one of those guys who could recognize how good of a person he was, you know, with his charity, with his grandkids, and his that you would see behind the scenes, but then how he treated you in front of the scenes, it, it didn't reconcile with me. And so I called him on it a lot of times. In fact, we got into a, a big FU match uh, in, my, in my last uh, my last season, my last couple of games after he had to fire uh, his offensive coordinator after we lost to Jacksonville. Um, but it set the stage for, I think, some good things to come forward for him. And um, I'm proud of him. I don't. We haven't talked literally since my last game uh, in the National Football League, that Philadelphia game that you referenced in the postseason when we couldn't stop uh, Brian Westbrook from marching down the field and they kicked the game-winning field goal that ended my career. Uh, not that I'm bitter about that or anything. But it's, it's one of those things where, where, where I, I respect him. We just never got along. I'd love to rebuild that bridge at some point. Don't know if it ever happens. Um, but I have nothing but great things to say about him as a coach. Uh, and that's all you can judge. That's all I can judge him on. Hey, Tiki, thanks so much for the time. Really appreciate it. And tell Tierney I'm available next time you want to debate a Hall of Fame class. No, no doubt. We'll get you on for sure. Appreciate you, Clark. You got it. That was former Giants star Tiki Barber. Up next, it's Two Minute Drill. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, we're getting near the end of the first half of this program, so... That's the Two Minute Warning. 
No, that's not another Clay Matthews penalty. It's a signal that we're going to the two-minute drill with Rick Goslin asking this week's questions. Gooseman, take it away. Which rookie quarterback was more impressive last weekend? Baker Mayfield beating the Jets or Josh Allen beating the Vikings? Allen, you beat a 17-point spread. Exactly. Mayfield was playing the Jets, after all, who I picked to uh, be the Browns' first uh, victory only a few weeks ago on this thing. So the other guy, he's playing one of the best defenses, and what happens? He's got a 27 nothing lead at halftime. Josh Allen. Ron, two-minute drill. Not- <laughs> this is not the two-hour drill. Yeah. Who, who should have greater concern after last Sunday, the Patriots or the Vikings? Patriots. They just lost to a coach that Detroit Free Press said was in over his head. <laughs> Patriots, I have no further comment. <laughs> Tom Brady says he wants to play until he's 45. After the last two weeks, should Brady rethink his career plans? Nope, because last week he played like he's 45. Exactly. After the last two weeks, he's feeling like he's 45. You're stealing my stuff. Come on, man. Yeah, I am. After Sunday night, should Rob Gronkowski rethink his veto of the trade to the Detroit Lions? Oh, you're not going to like this, Goose. No. No one should regret not going to Detroit. <laughs> No, he should rethink how to get open against double coverage because he's going to see a lot of it. <laughs> After Sunday afternoon, should Vontae Davis rethink his halftime retirement from the Bills? You kidding me? No football means more quality time at Duff's. <laughs> <laughs> the answer is no. The minute you feel you don't belong out there, you do not belong out there because it is a minefield if your mind doesn't feel like playing. Adam Thielen, Adam West, or Adam 12? Edie Adams. Oh, good one. Adam and Eve, unfortunately, are original vegetarians. What a sin. <laughs> they vegans. How soon is too soon for the Patriots to activate Josh Gordon? After what I saw last week, it can never be too soon. <laughs> if his hamstring doesn't work, any time is too soon. How much faith should the 49ers have in C.J. Beathard? I have more faith in his granddad, Bobby. Less than I have in C.J. Lewis, Clark's favorite British reggae singer. (laughs) Right. That's right. Which Texas team is a bigger disappointment, the winless Houston Texans with no defense or the one-win Dallas Cowboys with no offense? (laughs) T.C.U. The Texans. Rick warned us that the Cowboys had no offense, but who thought the Texans had no defense? That's the end of that. That's the end of our first half, but don't go anywhere. Coming up in the second hour, we have former Chief Star Duran Cherry and the best Raiders not in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. So stay where you are. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Welcome back to hour number two of the Talk of Fame Network, where we've got the studio dressed in crepe. Ron's New England Patriots. Crap. Okay. Yeah. I'm Clark, along with Rick and Ron, and in this hour we'll hear from Hall of Fame nominee Duran Cherry, as well as Hall of Fame voter Frank Cooney from Oakland. But before we do, guys, um, I saw a story last week that caught my eye, and, and frankly, uh, it got to me, and it involved Arizona wide receiver Larry Fitzgerald, who's sitting like this, who will be in Canton someday. Um, Apparently, Larry, along with teammates DJ Foster and Christian Kirk, decided to raise money to help a Scottsdale deli owner who's been diagnosed with cancer. So they paid for all the meals between noon and 5 p.m. one day and then gave the money to owner Joe Casella and his family to help with the bills. And Goose, I'd say that's a pretty classy move. Yeah, I'd say it's a very classy move. But, you know, I've come to expect that from Larry Fitzgerald. It's too bad every receiver in the NFL isn't cut from the same cloth. 
Yeah, no, I agree with you. And Ron, um, I saw where one of the customers said this was like the movie It's a Wonderful Life with, and as this customer said, quote, somebody making a difference and everybody showing up, unquote. I'd say that sounds like a pretty accurate description, wouldn't you? Yeah, I mean, this is a very sort of heartwarming story. And uh, Larry Fitzgerald has really shown, I think, over the years that whether or not he ever gets into the Pro Football Hall of Fame, uh, he's a first ballot good citizen. Yeah. And, and, and to me, that's in the end what really counts the most. Yeah, well, as Goose said, how many times do you hear that about wide receivers these days? First ballot good citizen. Huh? What? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you got the wrong position. Uh, got the wrong I, position. I, I, if and when Larry Fitzgerald goes in, I bet he shows up in Canton. Oh, yeah. yeah. Good chance I would say that. that's a pretty safe bet. Hey, I don't know if you guys saw the photos from that day, but there was a huge crowd that showed up. And the lines were so long that uh, I saw they said it took four, four or five hours to clear. And, and I tell you what uh, – you may not be a Cards fan, but you just can't help, as we've said here, but be a Larry Fitzgerald fan. I mean, Goose, he didn't have to do this, but he did, and he did it for all the right reasons. That's who Larry Fitzgerald is. You can name the NFL Man of the Year award after him and, for all practical purposes, retire it. Yeah. Well, you know, the one thing Larry should have done, he should have checked the line to see how many sports writers were there trying to collect a free meal. <laughs> <laughs> Probably had guys flying in from Provo to, once they got wind of that known. thing, you know. I wish I had known. <laughs> well, again, congrats to Larry Fitzgerald on a job well done. And speaking of a job well done, we're going to honor two friends of the show when we return from commercial. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, a couple of quick shout-outs to friends of the show. The first is to Andrea Kramer, who was on here a couple weeks ago, I think. Um, she and Hannah Storm are the first to call an NFL game together. And they're doing it for Thursday's Minnesota Rams game as part of the NFL's Amazon Prime package. Nice job, Andrew. Congratulations. And the second, of course, is for... Hey, can I ask you a question? Yeah. How can those two women be part of the Amazon Prime package? Shouldn't they be like 6'2", like Wonder Woman? You know? <laughs> Why did I let him ask that question? I, I just, I'm just saying, you know, I'm, what do I know? <laughs> <laughs> okay. We've got a couple of quick shots. <laughs> and the second is What's for wrong Hall with of Famer. I don't know. Do We've I been asking that question for 20 years. I don't know. Um, the second's for Hall of Famer Tony Dungy, who was inducted into the Tampa Bay Bucks Ring of Honor this past Monday. You'd know it if you watch Monday Night Football. Certainly deserving goose. Uh, only got one question here. Why did it take him so long? I don't know. I saw John Gruden's name already up there in the stadium. For yeah. He won a Super Bowl with a team Dungy built for him. You no, know, like the Hall of Fame itself, uh, it must all be must be all about the rings, and not necessarily any sustained excellence. All I can say is this: it's about time, Tampa. Well, Goose, I got a feeling we might be asking the same thing of, of your team with Gil Brandt, who's a Hall of Fame nominee for the class of 2019, but who is not, and I repeat, not in the Cowboys Ring of Honor. Goose, you think they're going to fast forward that when Gil makes it to Canton? Hey, Jerry Jones isn't in the Ring of Honor yet. He's already in camp. <laughs> Wait a minute. And he is the ring of honor. He's damn ring. I mean, <laughs> he is the ring of honor. This. Jerry will have an easier time putting Brant into the ring than putting himself in. Whoa. Wow. Well, Ooh. each week it seems like we're, uh, Ron, it seems like we're previewing another book on this program. We're also honoring uh, some of our past and present friends here. But um, 
This is about your New England Patriots because, as I said, we're always talking about books on here. We're talking about the Eagles book and um, another book on, on another team, another individual. There were a couple I mean, Eagles books, right? We were Eagles yeah, there were flying everywhere. Yeah, fly Eagles fly, and 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 this week, it's it's a tell-all about. <laughs> Your dysfunctional New England Patriots who are yeah. so out of sorts, they're so out of whack, they've only been to eight Super Bowls in the past 17 years. <laughs> the, the book is called Belichick, The Making of the Greatest Football Coach of All Time, and it's written by ESPN's Ian O'Connor. And, Ron, um, first thing first here, how about that title? I mean, is he, in your estimation, is Bill Belichick the greatest football coach of all time? Uh, no, uh, but to steal a line from uh, Bum Phillips, whatever uh, list he's on, it t- doesn't take long to call the roll. I mean, you know, there's no question about that. I mean, look, here's the facts when it comes to Bill Belichick. He has won five Super Bowls. He's been to eight Super Bowls. Uh, he's built a dynasty in New England, and he's 196-57 and 57, uh, with Tom Brady as, as his quarterback. He's also 55-63 and 63 over eight-plus seasons with all the other quarterbacks he's ever had. Now, he made the playoffs one time in his life without Tom Brady. Yes, he went 11-5. and five. Everybody likes to point out in 2008 after Brady got hurt. But A, his team didn't make the playoffs. And B, more importantly, that team was 19-1 and one the previous year, or 18-1, or 19-1. Uh, so it was uh, off by eight wins from the previous year. That's half a season. Lastly, let us eliminate the 55. Let's eliminate the Cleveland Browns. If we, we all would like to do that. We do that about this time every year anyway. Yeah, exactly, right. And so let's just look at what he's done in New England without Tom Brady. He's 19 and 19. Greatest coach ever? Eh, maybe not. Yeah, yeah. Guys, I'm still a Lombardi guy. He lost his first Mm -hmm. NFL title game and never lost another. The guy won in the preseason, in the regular season, in the postseason. So until they rename the Super Bowl trophy the Belichick Trophy, I'll be a Lombardi. <laughs> well, I'm with you, Goose. I'm with you, Ron, as well on that, especially on the Brady thing. But uh, let's look a little more closely at, at what's inside this book. For instance, um, Ian O'Connor says Tom Brady has, quote, had enough, unquote, of his head coach and would divorce him. Those were his words if he could. Um, he also says a friction between Brady or an alleged friction between Brady and Belichick was brought on by one, the draft of Jimmy Garoppolo, and two, then the trade of Jimmy Garoppolo, which keeps Belichick and Brady joined at the hip for, what, in the next decade, Ron? Two decades? How long's Tom playing? I don't know. He's 65. <laughs> um, does that sound familiar to you? Both those things sound familiar to you, Ron? Well, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, but it's, it's I've, I've talked and written about some of that stuff myself, but, uh, uh, but you know, these things happen over time. You, when you're together with that much time, uh, you know, nobody likes to see their future replacement show up, but Belichick had an obligation to the organization to do that. Joe Montana, as you know, Clark, as you were out there, that the, you know, we hated uh, um, Bill Walsh and, and Steve Young, you know, yeah. uh, because he knew what was coming. Brett Favre hated Aaron Rodgers and the Packers organization. He knew what was coming. Uh, and then Brady and the owner forced Belichick's hand on Garoppolo, and the, and the trade had to be made. Uh, I thought Bill, Bill did the best he could in that situation, and he's probably – He's probably as sick of Brady as Brady is of him, uh, but neither one is sick of each other on Sundays. Well, Ron, I'm glad you mentioned those those records with and without Brady because the book also suggests that Belichick believes he could divorce Brady too and still win. And there's an unnamed assistant in their quote is saying, if you gave us any of the top quarterbacks in the league, we could do it, meaning win the Super Bowls. I don't think the coaches view Tom as special as everyone else in football does. Robert Kraft thinks Tom is the greatest gift ever, but the coaches don't. And that's the quote. To which I would ask, as you did, if that's the case, why does Belichick have a losing record without Brady and five Super Bowl rings with him? 
Yeah, I mean, look, because we all know that that's a, talk about uh, uh, having a disjointed ego to, for anybody to say that is is ridiculous. Uh, because the numbers are on the wall, as my friend Parcells used to say, the skins are on the wall. Uh, you know, forget uh, uh, Belichick. Let's look at all Brady's assistants. You know, his coaching shrub, as I call it. Uh, <laughs> they left. They all left down with Bill Belichick's system. But without Tom Brady, and they're a collective 102 and 157. That's a 39% winning percentage. Bill is 55 and 63 without Brady. Add it up. Do the math. Ain't good. Bill had eight years, including two-plus years in New England, to do it without Tom Brady, and he didn't do it. So, please, you know, you win with players, and the player in this case is Tom Brady. Well, we're going to win with the doctor here. Because that signal tells us it's time for Dr. Data. And that's our Rick Goslin. And Gooseman, what do you got this week? Well, it's a big week then for the highly touted quarterbacking draft class of 2018 with first-rounders Baker Mayfield and Josh Rosen making their NFL starting debuts. For the first time since 1999, there were five quarterbacks drafted in the first round, including four in the top ten. Mayfield went first overall to the Browns, Sam Darnold third to the Jets, Josh Allen seventh to the Bills, and Rosen tenth to the Cardinals. Darnold and Allen have already started and already won games. Darnold passed for two touchdowns in an opening day upset of the Detroit Lions, and Allen passed for a touchdown and rushed for two more in a shocking road upset of the Minnesota Vikings last weekend. Now Mayfield will start against the Oakland Raiders and Rosen against the Seattle Seahawks. Now the bad news. Rookie starters have a bad history. A very bad history. Since 1980, there have been 146 quarterbacks who made their NFL starting debuts as rookies. Only 48 of those 146 won those initial starts. 59 of them failed to throw a touchdown pass, and 98 of them threw interceptions. Among the winners were Max Hall, T.Y. Yates, Jim Druckenmiller, and Ryan Leaf. Among the losers were Dan Marino, Troy Aikman, Peyton Manning, Cam Newton, and Russell Wilson all of which tells us that one start, especially a first start, does not a career make. Aikman was one of 29 rookie starters who failed to generate a touchdown in his NFL debut. John Elway completed only one pass in his first start. (laughs) Randall Cunningham threw four interceptions, and Peyton Manning was sacked four times in their debuts. There are heights these five quarterbacks in the class of 2018 can achieve in their careers, but don't expect a franchise quarterback to be built in one day especially if it's his first day on the job. Having said all that, Gooseman, uh, isn't it easier for a young quarterback today than it was for Aikman in, in his day or Elway in his day or certainly Johnny Unitas in his day? I mean, defenses are softer than pudding, uh, and the plays are called for you. Don't you think it's easier today for a young guy to come in than it was in sure. those days? Sure. That's why 87 146 rookie starters have come since 2000. In Sarah Cap era, if you draft him, you play him as soon as possible. The rule changes handcuff the defenses, make it easier for a young quarterback to survive. That said, in that first start, the game is moving a mile a minute faster than they've ever experienced on a football field. So most of those debuts are rocky, but they tend to get it straightened out in short order. Yeah, Gooseman, I was, I was out in San Diego for Elway's rookie year. He lined up behind guard on one of the snaps. <laughs> like, what? Anyway, we're not going to line up behind guard, but we are going to break. And when we return, it's the best Oakland Raiders not in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Surprise, surprise, it's not Ron making the suggestion. This is the Talk of Fame Network. 
This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. It seems like Hall of Fame voter and longtime friend Frank Cooney has been with the Raiders since the days when they played at Frank Ewell Field. Remember that, Frank? Frank Ewell Field. Anyway, maybe that's because he's the only known sports writer to play down the same football team as Hall of Famer O.J. Simpson and who has covered the ups, downs, and sideways of the Raiders since 1969. Well, few people know as much about the Raiders' history as Frank, which is why he's here to tell us whom he feels most deserves to join the 26 Raiders already enshrined in Canton, 18 of whom are most closely associated with the silver and black. And you might want to make that 19 if you include Frank. Hey, Frank, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, great. You guys are the historians of this, so I'm just the uh, Charlton. <laughs> and I'll give it my best, yeah. Uh, well, uh, Frank, you and I are both longtime advocates of Cliff Branch, who's now in the senior pool. Uh, what do you say to those who argue they already have Fred Bolitnikoff and Dave Casper uh, in, and just how many Hall of Fame receivers can you have on the same team at the at the same time? I think you have as many Hall of Famers as there are people who belong in the Hall of Fame. <clears throat> Cliff Branch belongs in the Hall of Fame. Uh, even even uh, Casper said that he's not sure he'd have caught half the pass he did if Cliff weren't there. A lot of people don't remember the impact that he had on the team. Um, if you remember, the Raiders were a power running team back then. Right. The people we talk most about are tight end, wide, a couple of wide receivers. They they gained they had a thousand yard rusher almost every year, but unless you're a Raider Nation, live in the East Bay, or you're covered like Ron and I. You probably can't name them. Exactly. The reason they had these thousand-yard rushers, they couldn't put a seventh man in the box because you couldn't play the Raiders without putting two people on Cliff Branch. And uh, Art Shell tells the story. Uh, Ken Easley, when he went into the Hall of Fame, told horror stories of trying to cover Cliff Branch. And uh, it was just, he had a huge impact on that team. When we uh, were covering the team, Ron, I don't know if you did this, but you'd go to the opponent, opposing team uh, the, the week before and talk about who they uh, who they feared the most. What was the thing most on their mind? This Raiders team had Ken Stabler, Casper, all those offensive linemen, Fred Blitnikoff. The only guy they ever mentioned was Cliff Branch. Right. No, that's all the defenses that played. Focused on Cliff Branch. Do you th- do you think uh, that maybe part of the problem was that Cliff played too long? You know, those, you know, Casper and and Blitnikoff are already gone, and by the time it, it, it you know he he came up, uh, they had put so many guys from that team in there that it seemed to me like he just never really got uh, you know a fair hearing. That's well, true. He played long enough to play in all three of the Raiders Super Bowl championships. He was in '76. They averaged almost 25 yards to carry that season, right. and. Uh, he was there in the 83 season uh, when when they won their, their last victory in the Super Bowl. And uh, he's the commoner now that all the Raiders wins. He's, uh, I, I think he belongs in the Hall of Fame. I mean, we talk about getting when Swan in the Hall of Fame. We had a long, long arguments about getting him in the Hall of Fame. There's really no comparison between those two careers. You can remember Swan's graceful catches in the end zone. I mean, they were highlight moments. It was, it was a thing of beauty to watch. But uh, at the end of their careers, Branch retired, 
as the all-time leading receiver in postseason history, not Swan. Right. Frank, moving on, we have two guys in Tom Flores and Jim Plunkett who were the head coach and quarterback on two Super Bowl championship teams. Are either Hall of Fame worthy? That's an interesting question. I, I, in the case of uh, Tom Flores, I, I wish there was a category where a guy who spends that long serving the sport and serving it well. He was a quarterback for nine years. He was the original quarterback for the Raiders. He was a good quarterback, not a great quarterback. Then he took over when John Madden retired. And there was two things involved there. One is, oh, he took over John Madden's team. Well, yeah, that wasn't that easy to do. Uh, and the other thing was he had Al Davis looking over his shoulder and you wonder, was it Al Davis or was it Tom Flores? Those were tough times. The team he took over was also in the middle of uh, moving, you know, practicing in Northern California and playing in Southern California. And it was the biggest group of rene- renegades they ever had. And he won a Super Bowl, tw- two Super Bowls with him. Uh, I don't I think uh, that Al uh, was, was as much of a factor as Tom Flores in that. You talk about his tenure. He sounds like an ideal candidate candidate for the contributor uh, uh, spot, but uh, coaches aren't in that. Uh, do, do you do you believe coaches should be in the contributor category? I asked about that uh, because I mean he was a player, he was coach, he was an administrator, and, and a coach up in Seattle. He didn't have a good career in Seattle. That didn't help him. Uh, and then he came back and he's been on radio up until this year. So from 1960 to this year, he's uh, he's given his life to football, uh, and uh, and been, and he's a, such a great guy. He's, he did a did a great job. There are a lot of highlights in his career. I mean, he was the quarterbacks coach when they won the '76 uh, season Super Bowl. He was a head coach when they won the next two. So it, it just it hurts that I can't find a niche for him in the Hall of Fame. Hey, Frank, I want to ask you about another guy I'm pretty high on, and he's been a finalist many times, and that's Lester the Judge Hayes, who <laughs> stuck to receivers like glue, and maybe that's because he was covering glue. I don't know. But um, some, some say yeah. he and Mike Haynes formed the greatest cornerback tandem in NFL history. Does he belong in Canton? And if, you, if so, why? I'm not quite sure. I mean, he had that one spectacular season uh, in and uh, we had like 18 interceptions, and most of them counted. Right. And, uh, and maybe it was the glue. Uh, he wasn't the easiest guy to interview, although he was, he was, he was really a great guy and a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, just uh, you can picture him in that stance where he's nose-to-nose with the poor uh, wide receiver who – couldn't have been too comfortable because he was a linebacker coming out of college. He hit, I mean, people don't, may not remember, he could really hit. He could hit like a linebacker and run like a deer. And uh, he was really physically gifted cornerback. And, uh, you know, he's on the same team with Michael Haynes, really nice guy. And I am. There's a lot of things going into the uh, public perception of a player. And, uh, Mike Haynes pretty much checked off all the boxes, and unless he didn't check off all the boxes, but as a player, I thought he belonged in the Hall of Fame. 
Well, one fascinating guy to me, uh, especially in light of uh, the voters' decision to put in uh, Daryl Davis a few years ago, is is uh, Bo Jackson. It's fascinating. Obviously, he doesn't have the numbers of some other guys because he missed so much time playing baseball. Uh, but when he did play, he put up numbers and he put Marcus Allen on the bench. Uh, where does he stand with you in light of this sort of new three-year window thing that seems to be uh, all you have to do anymore? Yeah, well, he split the seasons he did have, and that certainly didn't help. Um, For a blink in in the history of football, he was the greatest running back to carry a football. I'll I'll, I'll stand behind that. Uh, He's bigger than fast guys and faster than... he He just had it all. And if he'd have devoted his time to football, which... You know, I can't. That's an if you can't take it into consideration. You can only imagine what what the hell would have happened. And he had that unfortunate injury, uh, or he might have played long enough to make the Hall of Fame. But that's that's part of the equation. Uh, there are there's at least a couple of guys in the Hall of Fame that maybe should have uh, should have needed to play a little longer to prove they belong there, because I really believe that is part of the game. You, you don't get in on what you should or should or what it could have done. You get, get in on what you did. And, you know, unfortunately, Bo didn't, wasn't around healthy enough long enough uh, to give us a show. Mm-hmm. All right, Bo Jackson, the greatest Raider. Have you already forgotten Marv Hubbard, Mark Van Egan? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Pete Banizak? Pete Banizak, yeah. <laughs> Clarence Davis. There are people, see, see, there are people outside of Raider Nation who can remember those thousand-yard runners. <laughs> yeah, me and you, that's about it, Frank. <laughs> <laughs> Frank, let me ask you about the other guys. Hersha Walker and Doug Flutie, a couple guys who put careers in a couple different leagues. What do you think on the, about them as Hall of Fame candidates? Well, I think Herschel Walker, Walker absolutely belongs in the Hall of Fame. Uh, it's the Pro Football Hall of Fame that the USFL, is, as I recall, was pro football, and I enjoyed watching it. And he validated that league. And then he came to the NFL, and, you know, circumstances were what they were. He, he built a Super Bowl team in Dallas by leaving, and... Uh, you know, he played. I mean, the last thing I remember, uh, Rick, you're you're good at remembering the years and the details. I think he was in his 19th year at pro football, and he was covering kickoffs. I mean, that's just ludicrous. I mean, he was such a great team player, and he did not have the statistics that you could just dismiss. But he had them all over the board. He wasn't just a runner. He wasn't just a returner. He wasn't just a receiver. And he covered kicks for crying out loud. Uh, in the history, you know, that I remember, he was a, a major historical figure in our game. And uh, I think he deserves to be in the Hall of Fame so people know his story 100 years from now. Hey, Frank, uh, like Herschel and Bo, we got to run. We got to run right now. Thanks so much for the time. See you down the road. <laughs> Thanks, Frank. Good job. You got it. That was Hall of Fame voter Frank Cooney coming up. It's Hall of Fame nominee Duran Cherry. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. 
This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Our next guest, Deron Cherry, was a 1980s NFL all-decade safety with the Kansas City Chiefs who intercepted 50 passes in his career, went to six consecutive Pro Bowls, and was a three-time All-Pro. That's not all. Off the field, he was selected the NFL's 1987 Man of the Year. Yet Duran has never been discussed as a Hall of Fame finalist. And with this, his 23rd year of eligibility, time is running out on his Hall of Fame candidacy. So we've invited Duran to visit with us and talk about his career. And Duran, we are glad you accepted. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate being on your show. Hey, Duran, I was covering the Chiefs in 1981 when you signed as an undrafted college free agent punter out of Rutgers. So how does a guy go from an undrafted college free agent punter to an all-decade safety? <laughs> well, I tell you, Rick, it's, um, it's quite a story. As you know, um, I came in my rookie year. I was a punter. We had Frank Gantz, who was a new special teams coach, and he wanted to change my punting all around. I never had a punt block in college whatsoever. I averaged over 42 yards a kick in college. But he wanted to change me, so I picked up the phone and called Mark Levy, and they had drafted three safeties that year. Of course, you know one of my uh, uh, playing mates back there, Lloyd Burris, was a third-round draft choice, and they drafted two other guys, and I played safety in college. Ted Cottrell, who was at that time Mark Levy had hired as the linebacker coach, um, he was my defensive coordinator at Rutgers. And uh, so I called him and I said, hey, you know, I can play safety too. You know I can play safety. What do you think if uh, I give Mark Levy a call and ask him to bring me back and let me play safety? And he thought that was a great idea. So uh, Marv, thank God, said yes and brought me back into camp and let me play safety and try out, and I wind up making the team. <laughs> wow. Uh, you know, Mar. It's funny you mentioned Marv. You know, he he uh, took four uh, teams to the Super Bowl, didn't win. He's in the Hall of Fame, um, but he also, you know, had four consecutive seasons of improvement in the win loss record before the uh, the eighty two strikes and the team collapsed and, and you guys went three and six and he got fired. Uh, Lamar Hunt later said that was the biggest mistake as an owner of the Chiefs that he ever made, firing Marv Levy. You played for for Marv, and, and it sounds like to a degree he saved your career. Could you see the makings of a Hall of Fame coach, uh, Duran, when, when you were first out there with him? Oh, absolutely. Marv was a tremendous coach. You know, one thing I was so impressed with about him was that he treated everybody with respect and he treated everybody as a man. The one thing that I admired so much about Marv Levy was the fact that he let his coaches coach. He hired the best coaches and he let them do their job. And, uh, he gave them the leeway to, you know, make decisions, and that's what coaching sometimes is all about. I was fortunate enough in those six Pro Bowls to play for a number of, uh, you know, pretty pretty good coaches. Don Shula, you know, Chuck Noll, Chuck Knox, Marty Schottenheimer, and the one thing I think they all had in common was the fact that they they had great coaches, and they let those coaches coach and. They understood the game of football, and Marv was that type of coach, and you could see it coming. It is unfortunate that in that strike-shortened season after that, you know, they wind up firing him, and and I think uh, that was probably one of the the worst mistakes that probably Lamar Hunt ever made was getting rid of uh, Marv Levy because I think uh, history be told, you know, Marv probably would have drafted either Dan Marino or Jim Kelly for the Chiefs, and Quite frankly, the the Chiefs um, 
history would be a lot different now. Yeah, I think either one of those guys would have made a difference. Um, hey, Duran, as you know, and, and, and as we know as voters, um, the Hall of Fame loves champions. I think there is something like 68% of everyone enshrined is wearing a championship ring. And, and not only did you fail to win a championship during your 11 seasons, but your Chiefs managed to win just one playoff game. And so I guess I'm wondering, how frustrating to you is it that individual achievements only seem to be viewed by the Hall and its electors through a team lens? Oh, it's very frustrating because I think as as a player, you go in with the mentality that you're going to try and be the best player that you could possibly be and be the best in the league at your position. And I think I accomplished that throughout my career. It's unfortunate. I think a lot of players have accomplished that. But unfortunately, you know, some of those players never got an opportunity to play in a championship game. You know, I was fortunate enough to play in three playoff games. And I think uh, in one, I you know, helped our team to victory by, you know, picking off Todd Marinovich twice and leading us to a victory. And in the next game, I picked off Jim Kelly, and we wound up getting beat in Buffalo. But I can I can tell you this, that there are a number of great players who don't get that look just because they look at championships. And I think that that is a, a, an injustice to the players who play the game the right way, do things the right way, accomplish things for their team to win. But unfortunately, because... Football is a team sport, and you have to have not only a good defense, but a good offense and special teams. When those things don't come together and you're not able to, to have maybe one side of the ball be as good or effective as another side, and some of it is coaching too, uh, the, the style of play and the type of offense that you have maybe is not conducive to winning championships. So it's unfortunate that people look at it that way. Uh, I think they should look at the accomplishments of the players in in the era that they played in and how, you know, and judge them based on that. I mean, when you think about the years that I played and the, and the type of caliber of quarterbacks that I played against during those careers and the running backs that were in the league during that year, uh, it, it was pretty incredible to, the, the type of talent and the, uh, and the players that I went up against and, and performed against at a high level. Duran, I did see you play a Hall of Fame game in 1985, Seattle. You intercepted a Kerr-high four passes, three against Dave Craig and a fourth against Gail Gilbert in a Kansas City victory. So tell me, are four interceptions in one afternoon a product of luck or design? No, it was design. You know, I don't think it was luck. I think, you know, the luck ran out because that particular game, Rick, I had my hands on like nine footballs, but it was a, it was a downpour. It rained a lot. Uh, but I've always had success against Seattle, you know, picking off passes. I think my 50th career interception was against Seattle. Uh, but, yeah, I had four interceptions in the game. I had another one that Lloyd Burris hit me and knocked the ball out of my hand. Otherwise, I would have had five and broken the record. So, I mean, it. yeah. And so that 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 game, I remember, was uh, it was a downpour, but, you know, we wind up uh, beating Seattle. I had four interceptions, and, you know, it's one of the highlights to become, you know, one of only four players. I mean, actually, I think it was 26 players that have gotten four interceptions in a game. Um, or maybe, no, that, that's not right. It's uh, I think it was 26 players that have gotten 50 interceptions in their career. 
1988, of course, you intercepted seven passes. You recovered six fumbles uh, on the way to your mm-hmm. uh, third first-team All-Pro selection. Uh, you can understand the interceptions. You know, your safety. Uh, but the fumble recoveries is, is, is quite remarkable. How does a guy come up with six uh, fumble recoveries, and how does a guy get into the right place at the right time six times? Uh, how did that all work out? Well, the first thing is I was a student of the game, so I studied a lot of films. So I knew tendencies. Uh, I think today I look at safeties and I wonder, I see guys that are back at 15, 20 yards. And, you know, the most I ever played was at 12 yards, depending on whether I could recognize before the snap whether it was run or pass. If it was run, I'd be up at 10 yards. If it was pass, I'd cheat back to 12. But, you know, never really got beat deep because I could – you know, studied enough film to understand the tendencies in the offense and what they were trying to do and certain formations, which was run and pass. So 95% of the time before the ball was even snapped, I knew if it was run or pass. So I could put myself in a better position to come up and make a tackle or come up and make plays. A lot of those fumble recoveries were ones where, you know, I would even take the ball away from the, the, the receiver or the running back and strip it and make a big play because the more big plays we can make on defense turnovers and give the ball back to our offense that was an opportunity for us to have success so I was always around the ball and I think uh, you know being around the ball as often as I was you know chances are you're going to be able to make some plays. Well, Ron, full disclosure, I know how good you were because I covered the Chargers during those days, and, and so I'd see you twice a year. And I also saw you secondary twice a year, and I remember how good all you guys were. You had four Pro Bowlers, you, as you mentioned, Lloyd Burris, strong safety, cornerbacks Albert Lewis and Kevin Ross. But but you also had Pro Bowl pass rushers uh, in your career. And Art Still was there, yep. Bill Moss, Derek Thomas, Neil Smith. I, I know we always preach on here, defense wins championships. You guys had good defenses. So why mm-hmm. didn't the Chiefs win more in the 1980s? Well, you know, I've said it before. I mean, it's a combination. It's a team sport. And, you know, you have to have an offense that goes along with it. And I think back in those days, especially when Marty came in, Marty was the type of coach that, you know, he wanted to win with defense and we had great defense. But offensively, he was kind of a grinded out guy. That offensive style was not conducive to, you know, it was conducive to getting into the playoffs, but it wasn't necessarily conducive to winning championships because it was very conservative. And in this league, you have to be aggressive. You got to score points offensively, even though you might have a good defense. And remember the teams in the 80s, you know, the Niners, you know, stick out. And a lot of those teams that, you know, had explosive offenses had great defenses, but they had explosive offenses. So you had to have a combination of both good defense and good offense and we maybe had one facet of that I mean even though you know we had some running backs at the time Christian Okoye and Barry Ward that would grind it out but you know uh, the other thing that makes a big difference and I think you guys know it is the fact that if you don't have that quarterback at that position uh, that's a game changer it's very difficult to win championships if you don't have that guy behind the center and it seemed like we were always uh, you know had a journeyman quarterback you know probably the best one we had was Steve DeBerg at the time but uh, we didn't have that Dan Marino we didn't have that Joe Montana we didn't have you know Jim Kelly Um, so that that affects you too and that's another reason why you know it's hard to win championships unless you have that you know that franchise quarterback behind the center I think we all recognize that that that's an important part of winning championships in the NFL. Duran, you face a, quite an assortment of Hall of Fame quarterbacks, as you mentioned, Joe Montana, John Elway, Dan Marino, Dan Fouts, Warren Moon, 
Which one was the toughest for a free safety to read, and was there one that you enjoyed playing? Well, I enjoyed playing against uh, John Elway, you know, a lot because we played him twice a year. But all those quarterbacks were very good in their own right. They had different styles. You know, Dan Fouts, he was a three-step drop quarterback, got the ball out of his hands really quick. Uh, of course, John Elway, he could scramble around. He had an arm that was so gifted that he could throw, you know, across the field and make big plays. Um and, uh, you know, Warren Moon, he was just smooth. You know, he had a tight spiral, could fit balls into different areas. I would say the, the one guy that challenged me the most when I played was probably Dan Marino because his arm was so strong, he had such a quick release. And if you got out of position one step, one step, he could make you pay for it. And um, that was the, the guy, the only guy that really made me play honest because I knew he was capable of making a play, you know, if he got me out of position. So it was fun playing against him because it was always cat and mouse. We'd always kind of wink at each other, you know, and, you know, kind of play little games trying to disguise defenses against him. But, you know, he was that good. And if you got out of position, he was going to make you pay. Hey, Duran, it's been fun talking to you. Thanks so much for the time, and best of luck with your Hall of Fame candidacy. Hey, I appreciate it. Thank you guys for having me on. Thanks, Duran. You got it. That was former Chief Star Duran Cherry. Up next, it's the Two Minute Drill. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. We're almost out of time here, but not quite, so that means... <laughs> That's the two-minute two warning. Yep, it's the two-minute drill. Goose you're on the clock. Let's go. Biggest surprise, the Dolphins or the Titans? Dolphins. Not sure why, Goose, but I have trouble remembering the Titans. <laughs> He's such a funny guy. It's got to be the Titans. Dolphin quarterback Ryan Tannehill is 10-1 and one in his last 11 starts. Did you guys forget that? What was in my column? What did Andy Reid see in Patrick Mahomes that no one else saw? Nolan Ryan. <laughs> a quick mind to go with a rocket arm. Will Clay Matthews ever tackle another quarterback without a penalty flag? No. It's the Clay Matthews rule, and it says whenever he hits a quarterback, flag him. Actually, no, he will. As soon as the quarterbacks start wearing those pink flags, which should just be another year or two. The Falcons now have lost both of their starting safeties with season-ending injuries. How many more safeties must get on before Colin Kaepernick crony Eric Reed gets the call? <laughs> 135. <laughs> Precisely. Eric Reed is should take up hockey because he's on ice. <laughs> Eli Manning completed 25 of 29 passes in New York's upset of the Houston Texans. Did benching offensive tackle Eric Flowers heal all that ailed the, like, the Giants? No, sir. Scheduling the Texans did. Exactly. How can it be an upset if you beat the worst team in the league? <laughs> <laughs> Is all that ails the Eagles cured with the return of quarterback Carson Wentz? Not sure, Goose, because what exactly ails the Eagles? Last time I checked, they were in first place. <laughs> he was 8 for 8 on the winning drive, Sonny, and is 12 and 2 as a starter, so I'd say he's a lot better cure than snake oil. Disgruntled Pro Bowl safety Earl Thomas intercepted two passes against the Cowboys, but he still wants out of Seattle. Should the Seahawks trade him? Uh uh-uh. uh. Otherwise, you become the Oakland Raiders. Ouch. No, they should just not let him come to practice for two days and let him play on Sunday. The Ravens have 12 touchdowns and 12 trips to the red zone this season. Are you becoming a believer in the magic of Joe Flacco? Uh-uh, no. Not until he makes the rest of the division disappear. <laughs> no, I'm becoming a believer in uh, lighting a fire under an underproducing, overpaid guy by drafting his replacement. 
Rams coach Sean McVay says it's disrespectful to call Jared Goff a system quarterback. What would you call him? Uh, Jared. <laughs> I would call him, respectfully, a system quarterback. That's the end of the game. We'd like to thank Duran Cherry, Tiki Barber, Mike Pereira, and Frank Cooney for joining us. Shay Raftis for producing us and you for listening to us. If you'd like to hear this or any podcast, just go to our website. That'd be talkoffamenetwork.com or find us on iTunes or your podcast app. Otherwise, look for us next week at this time and on this station. We'll be here and we hope you will be too.